Good morning, good afternoon, good day, good evening, good night, whatever time you're joining us again for another podcast episode of First Aid Basics. I'm your host, Jay. Today's podcast is a wrap-up and the last segment for the cardiovascular episode. Today's podcast is going to be dealing with bleeding and shock, signs, symptoms, what to look for, best practices for first aid measures, how to help uh, mitigate the bleeding if at all possible, uh, what to do for life-threatening bleeding. I am purposely going to leave out applying a tourniquet. I had some uh, thoughts about apply, uh, adding this to this podcast and have uh, come to the conclusion it's probably easier for you as the podcast listener and less of a liability for any possible errors. There is a lot of uh, possible errors in applying a tourniquet if done wrong. I would go back to your local jurisdiction to see if applying a tourniquet is even in your local standards. Here in Canada, it can be um, applied if no other wound care measures are helpful. It can be as an option, okay? And speaking of which, I would like to take a quick time out before I go on and thank all of my listeners. Uh, one of the analytics that I have access to is through Spotify, and I see that a majority of the, the listeners are in Canada. Shout out to the rest of Canada. Thank you very much. Uh, under that is uh, the United States, which shows the second most listeners through Spotify. I also am getting uh, reports of listeners in Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and re-returning. It's not perfect, but it is something that I have always felt near and dear to my heart was to spread as much first aid, knowledge, helpful information, and um, this medium seems to be the easiest to do it in. All right. I thank you. Without further ado, we're going to our last segment of cardiovascular emergencies. In a cardiovascular emergency dealing with bleeding or hemorrhaging, however, whatever term you want to use, there are two types of bleeding. Uh, there's internal and external. We will look at internal first as it's the one that not easily treatable where there's no bandage to put on. This is all internal bleeding. Uh, I'll give you some signs, symptoms, what to look for, some helpful tips on how to treat this person if uh, you suspect they could be in shock. Before we get into signs and symptoms and treatment for bleeding, Let's talk about mechanism of injury. I believe I mentioned that way back in uh, assessment episode. The word, the term mechanism of injury is you're doing a little bit more critical thinking on what caused this injury to happen. When you have a person who has signs of internal bleeding, 
first thing you want to look at is what part of the body is injured, what caused the injury, how severe is the injury, um, is there multiple body parts involved in this injury. So to do that, besides asking the person or witnesses, bystanders, you're going to assess them. So if they're complaining of a leg or abdominal pain or whatever, you need to look at it and lightly touch it to determine if this is a severe internal bleeding or a moderate or mild internal bleeding. So fancy terms, we call that um, bruise. Plain and simple. Nothing more than a bruise. It's a busted open blood vessel that is under the skin. All right. Yes, there are fancy medical terms, but at the end of the day, it's a bruise. And here's what we're going to look for. So taking your mechanism of injury into account, uh, the body part into account, are they having any uh, acute or new onset of symptoms? Are they showing signs of shock? And um, with bleeding, whether it be internal or external, um, the body can only um, adapt to so much until it goes into a state of shock. Now, shock is one of those broad, broad terms. Uh, I, I refer to as an umbrella term because there can be so many uh, different parts of the causes of shock, the treatment for shock, and the body part related to shock. So in this instance, we're talking about blood loss, so um, volume shock or hemorrhagic shock. One of the first ways the body tries to compensate is an increased heart rate. So the body's trying to make up for that loss. So there's different stages. There's compensatory, decompensatory, and bad. <laughs> we'll just leave it that way. Um, the last stage of shock is, is very hard to treat and very hard to recover from because our bodies are always in a stasis or trying to maintain a stasis called uh, homeostasis. Basically, that's a big fancy word for the body's happy with everything going on. Blood pressure, pulse, temperature, respiration, internal, everything. So homeostasis is what the body's looking for. And if it's out of that, for whatever reason, our bodies react in different ways. So if you have an infection, your temperature may go up. So that's your body's way of fighting that infection. So that's another way of trying to maintain the homeostasis. In shock, you have different stages of shock. Uh, and again, the first stage, the compensatory stage, it's not important that you know the different stages or the names, but it is important that you know the, the signs and symptoms. Okay. Increased pulse. They may be sweating more maybe complaining of thirst um, if it is external bleeding you will see the visible blood if it's internal you're going to be looking and lightly touching for um, signs of bruising okay so when you are assessing this person let's say it's their abdomen or their chest or any body part you're going to touch lightly touch okay and if you're lightly touching someone's abdomen um, it, there should still be some bounce into it, even 
if the person they do a hundred sit-ups a day or whatever and their their abdomens you got the six pack and the eight pack and all that good stuff if you lightly touch someone there should still be a little bit of a give okay in someone who has really um, internal organs or burst blood vessels in the abdominal cavity it's going to feel like you're pushing on a board or something really tough that's not normal there should be always some little give when you're pushing on a body part okay another thing you're going to look at is uh, if they're showing signs of shock their fingernails or their ears or their lips start to turn blue that's a sign of lack of blood flow to that body part Another item you can look for if you're trained is blood pressure check. Someone who is in the early to mid stages of a, of a shock, their blood pressure will actually be normal or a little higher because again, that's your body trying to compensate for whatever's going on inside. A low blood pressure is actually one of the later signs of shock. Um, confusion, agitation, um, one minute they're able to speak to you and then you go back to check on them again and they're not sure what happened or they're not speaking as coherently as they were uh, previously to you. So that's why getting that sample OPQRCT right off the bat as soon as possible uh, is so important. First aid for internal bleeding. Well, unfortunately, there is not a whole lot in a pre-hospital setting that you can do for signs and symptoms of shock or major internal bleeding. This person needs definitive medical care. They need to get to an emergency room as soon as possible. One of the basic ways you can help uh, with shock is maintain a normal body temperature. Don't make them too warm, but don't. their body's going to start to cool off as the shock progresses. So a blanket, a towel, a jacket, whatever you have that can help maintain their body temperature. If they're conscious and alert, position of comfort. I know um, if someone has an abdominal injury and they feel more relief bending their knees because it's taking less strain off their abdomen or their lower back, whatever is the most position of comfort for this person. Okay? If they go unresponsive, but they're still breathing and still have a pulse, place them in the recovery position in case they start to vomit or uh, anything like that. We want to maintain their open, their airways open if they go unresponsive or unconscious. Ensure EMS has been called uh, as soon as possible. If you would relay any findings to the advanced care once they arrive. And... That, unfortunately, is all you can do for major internal bleeding. If it's minor, like a small bruise, oh, by all means, ice or, or a cold pack, uh, 15 to 20 minutes on for every 15 to 20 minutes off. Uh, those are great little helps for minor uh, bruising. Okay? And the uh, medical terminology for a bruise is a contusion. Not to be confused with a hematoma. Yes, that is a contusion, but a hematoma is actually outward swelling. So what you would call a goose egg, you may, call it, may have heard it called a goose egg. That's a hematoma. But a contusion 
is just a fancy word for a bruise. We'll just leave it at that. External signs of, of hemorrhaging. As previously discussed in the first cardiovascular episode, we talked about the blood vessels coming off or to the heart. And one of the first ones that we mentioned was an artery. The artery comes off of the left side of the heart. That's the oxygenated blood going down or up to the body. This is easily presented or seen as a bright red and spurting characteristics because the bright red is the hemoglobin, the oxygen, the spurting because it's coming off the pumping action of the heart. And this type is the most severe, the most dangerous type so this needs to be treated right away direct pressure if you uh, don't have your gloves handy hand a dressing to the casualty if they're alert and able to apply their own direct pressure while you get your gloves on safety is always about most important uh, speaking of which if this is an arterial bleed and you do have some kind of eye protection I highly encourage it as um, there's nothing more scary than getting uh, blood in your eye because that uh, can be a focal point for disease transmission okay so take the proper precautions when available so apply a dressing have the person sit at rest or lay at rest whatever is most comfortable uh, so rest and direct pressure. One of the older standards was rest, elevate, direct pressure. But um, studies have shown that the elevation does little to mitigate major life-threatening bleeding. And same goes for the treatment of shock. Uh, that was an older uh, treatment method that you would elevate the person's feet and legs by so much to help alleviate the signs of shock. Uh, again, those studies were shown to have little to no effect for for some people in a shock. So apply direct pressure. If that first initial dressing becomes blood-soaked, leave it in place. Okay. Leave the first one in place always. You would apply a second one on top and apply tighter pressure dressing on this wound. If you find that the second one starts to bleed through and you have uh, a lot of resources available, you may remove that second dressing and reapply a new second dressing. Never remove the initial dressing on any type of life-threatening bleed. A, it is a source of protection from an outside infection, and B, clotting may have already started forming. so. We don't want to break up any possible clot formations at that bandage site. Okay. There are other advanced techniques for controlling bleeding. If you are properly trained in using um, pressure points, then if you find that after the second dressing is still bleeding through and still bleeding through and still bleeding through and you are trained to use pressure points and that is part of your local protocols by all means do if you don't know what i'm talking about then that means you probably weren't trained in it and that is an advanced first aid skill um, 
that may be either for advanced first aid, EMTs, uh, paramedics, etc. Depending on where you live and, and your jurisdiction. It's one of those advanced skills, again, similar to a tourniquet. If you uh, perform the skill wrong, it's not going to help and it could actually hinder this, this individual. Okay. The second type of bleeding that can be just as dangerous but over a longer period of time is venous or vein, bleeding from a vein. That's going to be more of your dark and flowing blood. If you've ever donated blood or had blood work done, the, that little tube that they stick in your arm is a vein, that little needle that goes into a vein. And if you look at the blood, you'll notice that it's kind of a, almost a burgundy color. Well, that's your deoxygenated blood. And that's uh, that can still be life-threatening if not controlled. So at any point during your primary assessment, you notice there's pools of blood or you see a blood mark uh, on their clothes and they are breathing, stop what you're doing, expose that area. So that means taking out a pair of scissors, exposing that area and treating that life-threatening bleeding as you find it. Okay? Life-threatening bleeding needs to be found in a primary assessment, not way down in a secondary assessment. So ABCs, airway breathing, circulation. It's not just pulse checking, but you're also checking for life-threatening bleeding. The third type of bleeding, which we don't associate with any formal threat to a person's uh, life or shock, is capillary bleeding. I mention it because uh, you, you, you skin your knee or if you cut yourself shaving, that could be uh, a capillary bleed. And barring those who have clotting this, uh, factor issues, that's generally not uh, a problem. Okay. Great. So that has covered a lot of the internal and external bleeding. Um, some signs and symptoms of shock. The treatment is very limited for pre-hospital basic first aid care. So maintain ABCs. If they go unresponsive, recovery position. Try to control the bleeding if it's external. The One of the big topics I definitely want to cover on the treatment of shock is do not give this person anything to eat or drink unless uh, you have been instructed by your local EMS dispatch or a local uh, medical authority. There, the reasons are is if there is internal bleeding and they do require surgery, uh, the surgeons and the anesthesiologist would prefer as much of an empty stomach as possible. That's one reason. Two, if you give them something to eat or drink, one of the signs and symptoms of shock is nausea or vomiting. So we don't want to make it any worse. We don't want to choke on the food or they start to gag and they throw it up then there's other problems, all right? All right, the last segment I want to talk about for first aid of the cardiovascular system is impaled objects in the chest itself, okay? I will just go into greater detail for impaled objects for uh, extremities, etc. But right now, the complications of an impaled object in the chest cavity are numerous and 
need to be taken with a little bit different approach. Any impelled object in the chest needs to be stabilized. We do not remove any impelled objects in the chest. Okay. Common sense says if you take something out, it's going to cause more bleeding. Either taking it out in itself, the act is can cause more trauma, or the whatever object is in there is next to an artery or a vein, and that's actually keeping the person from bleeding out, so to speak. So we want to keep the impelled object in there. Again, otherwise, if instructed by someone in your local uh, dispatch or local EMS, right? The best method to maintain good control of an impelled object is you're going to need enough supplies, whether they be bandages or some kind of uh, bulky towels that you can fold over that after it's all been applied on either side of the of the, uh, of the impelled object you think of it as a log cabin style so one uh, bandage or dressing goes one way the other dressing or bandage goes the other way so it's a very secure method at the end and depending on the length of the impelled object, you want to have enough resources to stabilize that object to at least half of the depth that's sticking out. Okay? No point in having two or three small um, crisscross um, dressings covering that if they only cover the first two inches and you've got another six to eight inches of impelled objects sticking out of the chest because that's not stabilizing it in place. Okay? Uh, there was an agency I taught with that uh, made use of donuts and there's nothing wrong with donuts if that's, if that's what you're into. Uh, we find though that in this day and age, the impelled objects aren't always necessarily the same diameter as what you're practicing in class. So for, for us, it's faster, it's easier, it's better uses of time and resources if you just overlay uh, towels or bandages, whatever you have at your disposal, crisscrossed around that impelled object, okay? After you've maintained and obtained enough dressing to cover at least half of the impelled object in place, then you would tie it or tape it, whatever resources you have available to the person's body. Okay, so it doesn't fall out, it doesn't move. You want as little movement as possible. You're also main, trying to maintain if they have an open airway, if they're breathing, if they have circulation, so depending on where this impaled object is in the chest cavity, um, your options will be very limited. Okay. For those who have impaled objects directly in the center of the chest, it is most likely in the heart. Same rule applies. You're going to hold it in place unless your local EMS or dispatch gives you other instructions. Okay. This person has a very low survivability rate, but we don't want to take that 
low percentage away from this person. We want to give them as much uh, of a fighting chance as possible. Okay? Another form of uh, chest injury can be seen, and we go back to our mechanism of injury, to um, moderate to high um, motor vehicle collisions, uh, ATV collisions, where the body in motion was going at a certain rate and it suddenly stopped, whether it be the steering wheel or they, the, the body, the chest collides into a tree or to some other hard force uh, from a rapid speed. They can have sudden chest trauma, called traumatic asphyxia, and uh, it basically the sternum and the ribs have crushed in on the heart from that point of impact. And uh, this is very serious as the heart itself may have sustained uh, quite a bit of internal damage. And you would see um, from their neck up completely bloodshot or red or uh, any numerous forms of bleeding coming from different uh, parts of their head or eyes, nose, mouth, and it's, it's really not a pleasant thing to witness. Their, their chances of survival is very poor, but we still give them as much treatment as available. Um, so if it's bleeding and we can stop it, we will. The only time we don't apply direct pressure, and I'm going to talk more into that under the head and spinal injury coming up shortly, is the um, ears. Any bleeding or clear fluid coming from the ears or nose, we would just apply enough of a uh, dressing to collect or catch, not to um, stop that bleeding. Okay, so it's one of the few times that we don't want to apply enough pressure to stop that bleeding. Um, any clear fluid coming from the ears or the nose or combined with uh, some blood, just let it go. You, you can put some cloths or something under it to catch, uh, but we don't want to apply direct pressure on this. Okay. Alright, this concludes the cardiovascular podcast. One was a lot of anatomy. Two, we discussed CPR and AED for an adult. Three, we discussed CPR and AED for a child and baby. Plus, we discussed TIAs and strokes. And in this podcast, we discussed trauma related to cardiovascular. So that'd be your internal and external bleeding. We talked a bit about shock. And we talked a bit about how to maintain or what to look for in the mechanism of injury to help determine the seriousness of this injury. Okay. And again, I thank you very much for joining us. And our next podcast will be coming up in the next little while. And I have not determined where I'm going to go with this uh, from here on out. We may keep following a logical train of thought, but for this podcast episode, this ends what I would call a uh, the ABCs of first aid. 
and then we'll get into some of the other stuff. Thank you very much. Stay safe and talk to you later. One last item before I publish this is if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions. You can reach me in one of a couple of different ways. My email address is podcastfab at gmail.com. So that is P-O-D-C-A-S-T-F-A-B at gmail.com. Or if you are on Twitter, you can find me at search bar FAB 8832003. And those are just two ways you can reach this podcast if you have any questions or queries or concerns. All right. Thank you very much and have a great day.